What's your most obvious image of Christmas? Just kind of like yell it out. What's your most obvious image of Christmas? Christmas tree? Snow? Yeah, it came early this year. Anybody else? Charlie Brown? That's good. One more? What? Food. Food. Yes. Man, who really enjoyed the food last week? My gosh. I had to tell... I, t- I was telling everybody, like, we don't do this every week. We don't have... You know, like... And I, I think some people came today just for pulled pork and it wasn't here. I'm like, sorry. Just, that was just last week. But anyways. Um, you know, entering a, a season that we're going to be entering in the next couple of weeks, usually filled with gift giving and Hallmark movies and bright lights and how can you finish this sentence, right? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Who can finish it? Very good. Very good. Now, there's this one Christmas carol uh, that we sing often and is a very popular one. And it's one that, uh, that, that, that includes a word that we, none of us said in relationship to Christmas, and, uh, and often gets left out, especially in secular settings, but even in, um, you know, our, our church um, environments. So joy to the world, right? The Lord has come. Let earth receive her, what? King. Okay, that was his last line, right? Let earth receive her king. So often, as we lean into a season that we're going to be stepping into, we talk about Jesus as Savior, and Jesus as God's gift towards us, but we often, um, I think, forget or neglect Jesus as king. And it's really interesting, as we step into next week, which is a few weeks on the church calendar called Advent, in the last few years, we've been very intentional. We've gone through the themes of Advent, like hope and peace and joy and love. And uh, this year is going to be a little bit different, a little bit more sporadic in terms of our themes. But I was looking at the church calendar, and we're not really a liturgical church that follows the church calendar, but I want to throw it up on the screen. Um, and, you know, if you can see at the top there, December says Advent, then Christmas, sorry, yeah, ordinary time after that, or often it's called Epiphany, move into Lent and Easter. And then there's this whole green section, right, of the, of the pie that's called ordinary time. And the church was very intentional as they set up this kind of year uh, or a calendar year to help teach one another and grow in their faith and be formed in what it meant to be uh, a Christ follower in their culture at the time. And it was really important because it was visual, there was a rhythm to it, um, there was a sense of themes that really lifted up Christ in his various roles. And this whole ordinary time after Easter or Pentecost is several, several months And if you go to the next slide, there was a theme that was kind of slipped in right before Advent at the end of Ordinary Time, and the theme on this Sunday is called Christ the King. And it's a theme, and it it seems like the idea around this was, um, hey, before we wrap up the year, that church year, not our calendar year, from the beginning of Advent until Advent starts again, let's let's remind ourselves that Jesus is king. Interestingly enough, probably in the early 20th century, around 1920 or so, um, I think a leader in the Catholic Church, actually, looking at Europe beginning to be uh, governed 
by more secular leaders thought, we got to lift up this theme because we are forgetting the idea that Jesus is King and Lord. And, and that, that's what I want to talk about today. It's not a Christmas message, but I want to start further back to an Old Testament text in Jeremiah 23, and I want to read it with us uh, today. And it's, uh, we're going to read it and, and kind of use it as a springboard as well and try and understand this theme of Christ as King. So it starts a little different, all right? Kind of like with a, with a, a critique of Israel's leadership. So Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you've scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend to them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will they be missing, declares the Lord. Here's a couple of key verses. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, a righteous Savior. Let's pray. God, as we take this morning and uh, really press pause in all the other things that are going on in our life, we long to lift you up. And we ask you right now that you would speak so deeply into our hearts and intersect our lives, our thoughts. Capture our attention, God, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I mean, basically, here's Jeremiah. He's a prophet speaking into the life of Israel and um, speaking in a, a unique season of Israel's life slowly coming to the end of the rule of the kings. Israel was ruled by kings for a long time. But his prophetic call to Israel is that a new king is coming and a better king is coming and a king that would fulfill God's desires and purposes is coming. And the backstory of this, if you go way back to before Israel was ever led by kings, Israel was a nation and they were looking around themselves and looking at the other nations around them who were led by kings and monarchies and said like, hey, we want a king like everybody else. Because up until that point, literally, God was leading them through people like Moses, through judges, through others in their community. And Israel was called a theocracy. In other words, they were led by God through God's people or leaders in their community. But Israel looked around and said, hey, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. And almost reluctantly, we see this, this, this shift take place, this subtle rejection of God's theocracy that they want to be like other nations, and they get a king. And there's now an era of Israel being led by kings. And if you read through the history of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, or 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles Samuel, and those books there, you will see that there were some good moments, but overall, it was like a failed experiment, they never truly became the people they were meant to be with the kings that were leading them. And even in their best moments, it was never God's ideal. So often they were tempted 
to have military might like other nations. So often they were tempted to pursue wealth like other nations. So often they were tempted to pursue power and fame like other nations. And these kings, some that loved God and some that didn't, some that did good in God's eyes and some that did evil in God's eyes, nonetheless, they were often tempted with these things. Does it sound familiar to like leadership in our world today? Tempted with military might, wealth, power, like not much has changed. That's what was happening. And Jeremiah starts this section of this book with like a woe, you know, W-O-E, this kind of like critique to, we don't say that word too often, to the shepherds, to the leaders of Israel, kind of a blanket statement that Israel throughout the centuries, their leaders, their kings have fallen short to what God's desire for them should have been. But God's plan wasn't done yet. The failure of the kings was not the end of the line. Verse five says this, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So here's God. God still has a plan. The climax of the story for Israel and the world has not yet happened. God's plan is still in motion. And we understand, one, where this king is going to come from. It's going to come from David's branch or King David's lineage. And we can read into the New Testament and realize that's exactly what happened, when, at least uh, when we understand Jesus' fulfillment of this. But we also know what his reign will look like. It's going to be just. It's going to be wise. It's going to be righteous. It's going to be faithful. In fact, the way Jeremiah helps us understand this is that the climax of this rule of this king will be peace and justice and what the scriptures often use the word shalom, well-being. Because this king will lead wisely and execute with justness, justice. And the word for this king is this. The end of verse 6. Amazing title. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. I mean, think of this, that this, this new king will reflect God's values, God's purposes, God's vision, God's justice, God's faithfulness. The Lord is our righteousness. Literally in the Hebrew, that phrase means Yahweh or the Lord is our faithfulness. That Yahweh is our faithfulness. It's interesting because one of the last kings for Judah, his name was Zedekiah. And often kings' names had a meaning. And this king's name, Jedekiah, the meaning of his name was Yahweh is my faithfulness. Not our faithfulness, my faithfulness. What would happen is, with a name like that, right? Imagine, you know, you get, you get picked to lead something and it's like Rui, you know? Yahweh is my faithfulness. Now Rui all of a sudden has to live up to that title. It's like, wow, how do you live up to like Yahweh is my faithfulness? Zedekiah did his best, but even in his best, He couldn't live up to that. People were looking to him as, well, if Yahweh is your faithfulness, then why don't you do things that we believe Yahweh would do? Or why isn't Yahweh, the Lord, fulfilling his purposes through you in the way we think he would? And so people were depending on a king to live up to their name and hoping to see God's faithfulness in action through this king's leadership. But kings often failed at depending on God themselves. And kings often didn't live up consistently to reflect God's faithfulness. And Jeremiah says here, a new king is coming. A new king is coming. And this promise that says that out of David's branch, 
this new king will come. It's basically God saying, David's kingdom is coming to an end. We're cutting the tree. Boom. But out of the stump of the tree, this little branch starts to grow. And this branch is God's coming king. It's a promising future. One writer says, God has a vision for a king to reign with wisdom, justice, and authority. He promises to see it fulfilled. And when we see what's happening in this text, way before we ever see Jesus come on the scene, we see God saying, I'm at work. I'm going to fulfill my promise. I will send a righteous and just and faithful king. And he will lead wisely and righteously. I love this picture. But here's the beauty of this. This picture is not just about Israel. And it's not just about Judah. And it's not just a prophecy for them. You and I, like everybody we lock eyes with, longs, longs for justice. Longs for righteousness. Longs to see leadership lead wisely. Lead well. Lead honestly. It's not just about them. The longing in our hearts Tell, can, we can relate to this story in why God would come and say, this has been a failed project. I'm sending a new king. Because in the failed project, there was a longing like we all have for something good and righteous. And we all long for the world to be set right. And that's what they longed for. And that's what God wants. And in the climax of his story, that's what he brings about. So who's this king? We started the, our gathering with Psalm 24. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. And as we read these texts in the Old Testament, we see how they point to Jesus. Imagine when Jesus is first born. Um, there's kind of a makeshift king under Roman's rule. His name is King Herod. When this little baby is born, King Herod is freaking out. He's sweating. He's nervous. Because he sees, he realizes something's happening. This baby that's born, this prophecy that's being fulfilled, this is going to This is going to show how bad my kingdom is, my leadership is, my heart is. And he's nervous. When when Jesus is born as a baby, King Herod gets nervous. We already get a glimpse of how Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. But forward like 33 years later, when Jesus is is being convicted and he stands trial before Pilate, and Pilate asks him the question, so tell me, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't deny it. He's like, yes, you can call me that. And ironically, when he's hung on a cross, that label is there for him. King of the Jews. Jesus takes it because he is. And three days later, this king, who was born in a manger, who died on a cross, rises from the grave. And so what Jeremiah prophesied, what Jesus fulfilled, what the church affirmed then for centuries, is that Jesus is this king that God promised and then God prophesied towards that we would one day see. We see the climax in human history, and we see the fullness one day in new creation. But here, here, here's the question. If Jesus is king, and I, and I love this idea that at the end of like what the church calendar calls ordinary time, because over time we can forget, we can neglect, we can kind of like put aside who, who Jesus really is in our lives. And I think it was wise to say, you know what? Before the clock starts all over, Let's lift up Jesus as king. Before this year starts all over, let's make sure we understand the lordship of Christ. I want to take you to to like three quick, really quick New Testament letters that help us see how the early church saw this and discovered this. The first one is Ephesians 1 verse 17, and it's on the screen. And um, Paul, oh, did the screens stop? Oh, okay, sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> I just looked there. Hey, let me just open my Bible and turn to it. That's, oh, there it is. Perfect. Um, so here, here's Paul. He's writing, this, he's writing this prayer for the Ephesian church. So I'll start off with the first couple of verses. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, Lord, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and in his incomparably great power for us who believe. And then the next part of that verse That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul points to this power available for us, this same power that Jesus is raised from the dead with. And then it says this, that Jesus is lifted. He's seated at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Here's when, when the, the early church, as they were affirming and discovering and reaffirming who Jesus was, they saw him as Lord and King, not just Savior. He was Savior. He saves us from our sin, from our lost um, posture. But he's also Lord and Savior. And I think the next verse says this. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in any way. Now, just just that little line up there, under his feet, that's Paul taking this short phrase from Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. And the early church loved to quote Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. They loved to quote this phrase that God put everything under his feet. It was quoted by church leaders in the first and second century. We see Paul quoting it. This was the most quoted psalm in the early church because they knew Jesus was king, that Jesus fulfilled God's promise to send a new king. And here's the thing. Paul's desire for you and me as he starts his prayer, his desire is that we would see something that we often miss, right? He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that, that, that you would have the spirit of wisdom to see what? To see the hope that you have in King Jesus. We have friends from Calgary today, but um, they're a little further west, but I'm going to go talk further, further west, a little bit province over was British Columbia. We had friends that were part of our church that would, were here you know, for several years, and I'd bug them because they're like, man, Vancouver's so nice, and but, you know, BC is beautiful. And you know, my, my heart for mission in Montreal, I'm like, come on, seriously, guys. Montreal is like the best place in the world to live. Quebec is awesome, whatever. And uh, so we're, we would, I would always talk about this, and, but I've never, I was, I'd never went to BC. I never went to BC. So I would tell them, you know, you guys are just, um, you're just over-exaggerating like how nice BC is, you know? So one day, my wife and I and our kids, we went to BC. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, I'm standing in Stanley Park. It's like absolutely beautiful. You know, there's cyclists everywhere. You're around the water. You look off Stanley Park. You see the steamships like invisible distance. I'm like, I've never seen steamships this close. Then you turn around. You see the mountains on the other side. I'm like, you guys wake up every day to these mountains and to this. And I'm like, okay, I would move here too, you know? Like, I, I get it. And, and it was interesting because for years I would, you know, bug my friends like, come on, guys, seriously, Montreal, this Montreal is the place to be. Got to be here. Let's do mission. Let's love people. Let's see people come to faith. Then you go to BC, you're like, wow, I, it's tempting. It's tempting. And, 
And so I finally realized why everyone loved it. You know, and that's Paul's heart in this prayer. He's praying, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you would get the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you would know what you often miss, how powerful Jesus is. And the same power that raised him from the dead is available to you in your life. He's king and Lord, and he wants to work in you. And Paul says, sometimes you miss it. And he, he prays that we would discover it, that we would see it. So do you realize Jesus is king like this? Here's another New Testament text. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. I'm just jumping around to a few today, a little, being a little bit different uh, in how I'm teaching today. So Colossians 1, verse 15. Uh, I, I highlighted some of these, okay? Look how this amazing piece of New Testament scripture describes Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. I love that phrase. Keep going. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. Just pause at that word, that he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Did you catch this list of how, G of how Jesus is king? Like he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn. In him all things were created, heaven and earth. He's before all things. He holds all things together. He has the supremacy. He's the head over the church. All of God's fullness dwells in him. That is some amazing king. And we get this image how the New Testament and the early church believers caught this incredible truth of Jesus, that Jesus is not just Savior, he is King. He's Lord. But here's this other New Testament text, Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8. And it's a hymn that the early church sang and recited and, and um, often probably memorized and shared in their gatherings. Again, speaking of Jesus, Paul writes this to the Philippian church. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God. So Jesus has God's nature, equality with God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So just stop there for a second. Equality with God. Equality with God. This doesn't surprise us anymore because we say it so often. But this is huge. That Jesus, God's very nature, and is equal with God. And yet, yet, he takes on human form, incarnated as a baby, what we celebrate at Christmas, and dies on a cross, what we celebrate on Good Friday, that the Son of God, the King, King Jesus, equal with God, becomes a human and dies a human. Here's a flip on what it means for Jesus to be king. I'll come back to that in a second. Verse 9 to 11. Here's his kingship. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, lifting up Jesus as who he is, exalted at the right hand of the Father, all authority, all power. But here's the beauty of this King Jesus. He's a humble king. One of the best images I've ever seen of this is an upside-down crown. There was a a youth group in Calgary called Paradox, and their logo was an upside-down crown to to reflect the, um, the the, the humble posture of Jesus, our King. He came as a human, died as a human, humble. I was in, in, in Amsterdam. My wife and I were on a trip in, in September, and we had a chance to spend two days in Amsterdam. So, um, and we, uh, I was at the, the front desk with the hotel, and there's this tall, tall man that comes to the desk, and he caught my attention because he was getting some photocopies, and I, I scanned over because I'm nosy. Uh, anyways, I scanned over, and I noticed there was, they were, it was music sheets. And these music sheets, I could tell they were like written kind of like jazz sheets, like jazz books have them written. So I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And uh, so I look over, and, and I kind of, my nosiness again, I just asked him, asked him, hey, you know, hey, that's music. What are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm in town. I'm, I'm conducting an orchestra. We're playing at the Copenhagen Theater or something like that. And I said, oh, that's pretty neat. So, so we, just, we just started to talk. And then like the next day at breakfast, I saw him. And, uh, and then the next day, I had seen him again, and he was, uh, I was leaving breakfast, and he was sitting there all by himself, just kind of sitting there, and so I went and talked to him again. So we started talking, and I said, so tell me a little about yourself, and, and he asked me, and I said, well, I'm, I'm a musician too, and he got up from the table, and, and uh, you know, I've never conducted a jazz orchestra in Amsterdam, but I, I was, you know, I just kind of like used that to talk to him. So, so he, he got up, he shook my hand, we're talking, that's him on the left, and, um, and so we started talking, so in the end, and he said, yeah, my name's Dennis Mackerel, I'm like, oh, cool. I didn't know who he was. So I go back to my room and I Google him, you know, like any good 21st century person would do. <laughs> so again, I'm nosy, right? Anyways, I find out Dennis Mackerel, okay, he was a drummer for the Count Basie Orchestra, one of the most popular jazz orchestras like of all time. And not only was he, he played with Miles Davis, one of the most popular trumpet players of all time. Then he became the conductor of the Count Basie Orchestra after Count Basie. And I'm like, oh my gosh, who was sitting in front of me? <laughs> like, so I, I went back down, I'm like, hey, you play. And I'm like, can I take a picture? Right, I took a picture, right? Anyways, so, so it was just like, wow. But here's the thing that got me about this guy. He was so humble. I mean, he played with Miles Davis, the Count Basie Orchestra, conducts the Count Basie Orchestra. If you Google him now, he's conducting orchestras all over Europe. Amazing. I get to the table, stands up to greet me, shakes my hand. Hi, my name's Dennis Macro. What's your name? I'm a nobody from Montreal, right? And he's played in New York and all over the world. And I, but what struck me so much is the humility, even in his position, at least his musical position. And I thought, what an amazing example, at least an, uh, as what we can get as a, you know, an earthly example of Jesus, his role, what he's accomplished, what he's done, and he's such a humble, humble king. Such a humble, humble king. We serve a countercultural king. 
We serve a countercultural Lord and Savior and King. And who is this King? This King is Jesus. And if there's something we can grasp from this little piece here, is that Jesus makes us rethink our image of God. If you're here today and you've had a skewed image of God, if you're here today and culture has given you your image of God, if you're here today and you just, you know, you have some image of, 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 of God that, that, you know, you're wondering, is this the true image of God? Jesus makes us rethink our image and understanding of God himself. In fact, if God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, God, the scripture says, was in Christ reconciling himself to the world, and that happened through death. That happened through an excruciating death and previously through the incarnation. If that, that means that how God did that was through a humble king like Jesus, his son, that's the picture we get of God. That's the picture we understand of who God is. N.T. Wright says, start with Christ. Start with Christ and you'll have to rethink your view of God. Start with Jesus and you'll have to rethink your view of God. So vital. And here's why. Jeremiah said it, pro- prophesied. God, pro- God used him to speak into history that God would send a new king and his name would be the Lord, our righteous savior, Yahweh, our faithfulness. That's who this king is. That's who Jesus is. So as we respond today, as we we take some time just to think through what that looks like and maybe as you step into your day and into your week and into your practices. Here's just two, two really brief things. And it's super simple. How do we respond in our praying? Because Paul says, he prays, I pray that God would give us, enlighten our minds and our hearts and our eyes to see who this Jesus is. Why don't we pray that? We often just pray for stuff. We often pray for things. We often pray for God to do something. Why don't we take this prayer from Ephesians 1, verse 17 and 18, and start praying it. Lord, give me eyes to see. Give me a heart to see. Reveal to me more and more who Jesus is. In our praying, we can respond to God. Say, Lord, give me this understanding so I don't miss Christ the King. I want to see him. I want to know him. I want to understand his incredible power. And Paul says that that same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us in our lives. So as we pray and seek God and say, Lord, open my eyes. Wouldn't that be amazing? That, I mean, it's so, it'd be great if God answers your prayers when you're asking for stuff. That would be, be great. But it would be even better if our eyes would be open to see who Jesus is. That would categorically change our lives. So in our praying. And the second thing is in our living. I mean, look at this. Look at King Jesus. Do you see the list in Colossians? See what we read in Ephesians? See the title he's given, the, the Lord, our righteous Savior? And then we see the contrast in Philippians 2, this humble servant. Consider what that means for our life, the contrast in our world. What a contrast when you look at political leaders and global leaders and other leaders. I'm not, you know, I'm not calling them evil or this and that. I mean, I'm, but what I'm saying is that there's such a contrast with the leadership and heart of Jesus. What about for our living? What about in our lives? What about in our lives? How are we walking around? How are we treating people? How are we living out our faith? Man, we see Jesus as king, but he's a humble king. His posture is one of humility. 
And as we think about what that means, this next few weeks, it's going to be a blur to all of us. Right? From now till December 31st, it's going to be a blur. Right? We're going to snap in like January 2nd, January 3rd, whatever, right? And it's going to be, that's how it feels, right? What if this Christmas, what we are celebrating when we consider this season, as we step into Advent next week and move towards Christmas, that we are celebrating a humble king who died and rose from the grave and sits at God's right hand and he has the cosmos under his feet, but he leads with justice and righteousness. How would that change how we step into this season, how we trust God, how we posture our lives to serve him and let him lead us? I think it would change it so much. And what would other people see? What do other people see in us? I think it would be amazing. I'm going to ask us to stand as we close. And... Um, as I told you, today I, I, we picked this theme, I picked this theme really out of the liturgical calendar, partly because we've been in such a season of flux, and I thought, you know what, we've been pushing so hard up until last week, and it was such a climactic moment, and it's so tempting to just say, okay, what's next? Let's jump into like another season or a catchy thing or something, and we've learned um, the hard way that we need rhythm and rest in our lives and in our faith and in our walk with Christ, and um, when I was reading and reflecting and seeing this theme at the end of ordinary time, I thought, There's, it's always a good time to lift up Jesus as king. But especially as we, we shift into this season that's coming after this week. So there's a prayer on the screen that I found. Um, and I, I thought it'd be a great way for us to just slowly read through as we, as we close today. And um, I'll read it slowly. And I'll, I'll pause maybe at, at every sentence and comes over two slides so we'll go slow and just think about it and, and and i want to just ask you just as we close this gathering today just to just allow the lord to work how what is the kingship of jesus how is it confronting you what's god telling you how's god speaking to you what's what are the convictions that god's placing in your heart because jesus is king what maybe parts of your life have you not surrendered to him or given over to him or let him lead you in and guide you in so we're going to read this prayer slowly Sovereign God, we confess that although we willingly say that Jesus is king, we often fail to bow our knees before him. Instead, we grant our allegiances to the relationships and material goods of this world. In your mercy, hear our prayer of confession. Grant us the humility to bow before you the ruler of all nations, so that we may be loyal servants in your kingdom. Through your Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's just take a moment and process that and pray our own thoughts and responses to God. Maybe some of us are acknowledging our allegiances and relationships to the material goods of our world. Parts of culture that we're so taken back with or enamored with.
maybe how we've put our hope in political parties, political agendas. God, we ask by your Holy Spirit, you just show us the areas of our life where we've made these allegiances or alliances with parts of our culture that deteriorate our souls and often force us to detour off the path that you're calling us to. Whatever that means for us, God, we just humbly confess that truth where it relates to our life, God. And God, we turn today and we just, um, we stand on this truth. Jesus Christ is our King. He is the Lord, our righteous Savior. He is Yahweh, our faithfulness. He holds the supremacy. Your fullness dwells in Him. He sits at your right hand. You've exalted him to the highest place. And yet he's shown us what it means to be a humble king. A posture, God, of servanthood and sacrifice. God, may we embrace that and be challenged by that. And we ask by your Holy Spirit, you just lead us and guide us in what that means to live that out this week at school, in high school, or college, university, in our workplaces with our friends and family. And God, we pray like Paul, as we wrap this up, God, we pray that you would um, enlighten our hearts. You would give us insight and wisdom. You would open our eyes to see, to see the beauty and power and majesty of our King Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.